Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet Oncology podcast. I'm Patricia Lobo and today we are talking about an article discussing active surveillance for patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma published on August 3rd. I'm pleased to be joined by lead author Dr. Brian Rinney. Welcome Brian. Could you give us your affiliation please? I'm a professor of medicine at Cleveland Clinic. Please can you explain the background to your study and how it differs from other retrospective series on the topic of patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma and of patients with other malignancies? Sure. So the background really relates to the biology of kidney cancer, which I explain to patients is extremely diverse, meaning that there are some patients who unfortunately have very rapidly progressive disease and high-volume symptomatic disease, And then there are other patients that have much lower volume of disease and very indolent or slow-growing disease, and it's a very wide spectrum. I think it's as wide or wider than any other solid tumor. And so because of this, there's a subset of patients with that indolent disease, perhaps 10 or 20% of patients, who may not need immediate systemic therapy. So a typical patient might be somebody who had a nephrectomy two to three years ago, then developed some small lung abnormalities on uh, restaging CT scans, And those are followed over time because it's uncertain what they are, but eventually things grow and and grow, and it's clear that they're metastatic disease and maybe they're biopsied. Um, But it really takes months, if not years, for these nodules to grow. And so in clinical practice, and and this has been documented in prior retrospective series, you know, such patients could be watched, you know, often for months, if not longer. But the, the prior series were fairly small and, and select, and the, the frequency of scans, among other things, wasn't standardized. So what we tried to do was to look at this prospectively and identify such patients based on certain eligibility and other criteria, and then follow them more rigorously with defined CT scans at certain intervals, and also to look at you know factors that might predict for length of observation, look at anxiety and depression and quality of life to see if we were adversely affecting that, and then just look at their ultimate outcome when they did start systemic therapy. Please, can you explain the main findings of your study? We observed about 50 patients. This was a multi-center study done around the world. And the median time that patients were observed, so this is time from when they were registered on study till the start of systemic therapy, was over 14 months, so um, well over a year. But also with a, a wide range, meaning a subset of patients who were only observed for a scan or two. And then some patients who are actually still being observed now years later, and so some over, over three and four. We might even be up to five years in, in a couple patients. So again, a wide range of outcome, but clearly a long median of over a year that these patients could be watched before starting systemic therapy. It should be noted that the decision to start systemic therapy was not objectified, so it wasn't mandated based on growth of disease or total volume of disease or anything like that. It was really left up to the treating physician and and obviously the patient to decide. But generally, it was for sort of an accumulating burden of disease and just sort of the the sense of the treating physician that it was time to start therapy. So that's that's clearly a limitation of the study, that we didn't sort of have that hard rule. But that's sort of, that's just medicine. That's just clinical practice and how we take care of patients. As I mentioned, we also looked quite vigorously at anxiety questionnaires, depression questionnaires, and quality of life instruments, and really didn't see anything in terms of baseline findings or items that changed throughout the study. So one thing that was surprising was that patients actually love not to be treated more than I realized when we started the study. So most patients were relieved that they didn't need immediate treatment. And then, you know, over the course of the observation period when we thought they needed treatment, then obviously they were, you know, willing and able to do so. And then I would say the last thing is, 
we looked at the immunologic profile of patients as measured by peripheral blood samples at baseline and throughout treatment. And although it's you know not a perfect measure of immune competence because these are just uh, circulating cells, you know the immune profile of of patients who were able to be observed, um, who entered the study and observed for longer was was more favorable than a, a separate group of patients who were were treated immediately here. And this is for things like cytotoxic T cells, regulatory T cells, and myeloid-derived suppressor cells. And again, not a not a perfect measure by any means. This is just peripheral blood, not tissue, et cetera. But it sort of fits with the hypothesis that patients with indolent disease have something that's controlling their disease, and this would suggest that in part it's uh, some uh, somewhat related to their inherent immune competence. How do your results demonstrate that a period of initial surveillance is a safe option to select patients prior to systemic therapy? I think looking just at the overall cohort results that the median survival was approaching four years, clearly in a highly select group of patients, but didn't appear to be worse than patients who start systemic therapy, which by recent phase three trials would sort of be in the 30-month range in terms of overall survival. When patients started therapy, you can imagine they started all sorts of different therapies and not one consistent therapy, and so it's hard to really gauge their response to that therapy, but the objective response rate was about 30% in patients who were largely treated with tyrosine kinase inhibitors as a standard of care, and that's pretty much what we would expect from a set of patients treated immediately. And and this is important because you want to say to patients that it's safe for me to watch you for a period of time. It's likely to be many months, over a year, and that when we do start therapy, your response is going to be exactly the same as it would be as if I, I started you on therapy today. And you know, recognizing the limitations of a single-arm study without a direct comparator group, I think the results would support such a statement. You've touched briefly on this, but what are the main limitations to your study, and how will these be taken into account in future investigations that use this approach? I think one limitation is, of course, there were eligibility criteria in this prospective study. You can't objectify everything. You know, there is a certain clinical sense for patients who are suitable for this approach or not. And and obviously, patients need to be willing, so there's a certain mental state of patients uh, versus those who are more anxious and want to start treatment and would have never made it on study. Uh, As I mentioned, most, if not all, certainly people at my center offered this study went on, but it is a highly select group of patients, and I would just emphasize that this is, you know, not an approach to be applied to the majority of patients, but a, a, a carefully selected minority. Uh, as I did mention, you know, it is a single-arm study, low multi-center and involving many countries and therefore many different sort of patient types and, and treatment approaches, if you will. There is no direct comparator group and may or may not be possible to ever do such a randomized trial to randomize people to immediate or deferred treatment. I don't know if that's feasible given the number of current options in RCC and and I think at least for now, the present data as it stands will serve as sort of a guideline uh, to, I think, hopefully reassure patients and treating physicians that this is a viable approach. Looking to the future, what other factors can be used to increase patient selection for active surveillance, and what other therapies are on the horizon for patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma? So one thing we looked at in the study, which I haven't mentioned yet, is is baseline clinical features associated with length of surveillance. Basically, are there features at baseline where you could say to a patient, gee, you're, you're suitable for this approach because it's likely to be successful, if you will, for a longer period of time. And that was a lower number of adverse prognostic risk factors, the IMDC or hang risk factors. And that makes sense because those risk factors are in essence related to the underlying biology of the tumor. And although they were derived in patients who received treatment, 
you know, a certain amount of that is just the inherent biology and, and proliferation rate, if you will, of tumors. And so the fewer adverse risk features you have, the probably more naturally slow-growing disease you have. And the other was number of metastatic sites. So this also makes sense and probably gets to some of the physician bias that enters this study. And patients with a limited volume of disease, limited sites of metastases, you're probably likely to watch longer than patients who have multiple sites or a greater baseline volume of disease. So again, a, a little bit hard to tease out what are inherently associated with length of observation and, and what might influence the decision to end observation. And obviously those are, are tied together. I think in the future, you know, as is being done for many malignancies with therapeutics, it's looking at, you know, more sophisticated measures of immune competence, looking at baseline tissue and gene expression profiles and the like that really get a little more to the to the heart of the biology, you know, of these patients with slow-growing disease and, and rely less on clinical factors, which can certainly be subjective. So, you know, we may do that yet with blood and tissue collected in this cohort. And I think, you know, as our methodology gets more sophisticated to understand tumor biology, it's certainly something that could be applied uh, in this setting. In terms of therapies on the horizon, I mean, that's, you know, certainly a, another huge topic. And we're still treating metastatic kidney cancer patients with generally tyrosine kinase inhibitors or, or other inhibitors of the VEGF uh, axis, but certainly checkpoint inhibitors have entered treatment for metastatic renal carcinoma right now only in the refractory setting, but coming soon over the next few years likely to the upfront setting. And that does introduce a whole other consideration in this approach if, if checkpoint inhibitors can be well tolerated and can lead to very long-term disease control then it's possible that you might think about using those earlier in the course of disease, including in patients who could be eligible for this approach. But that'll be something that we'll need to sort out over the next few years. A very interesting study indeed, and certainly a step in the right direction. Thanks very much, Brian, and thank you all for listening. See you next time.